0: Hey guys, it's Rebecca. I just wanted to let you know, in case you didn't, that we recently launched my first fragrance. I'm so proud of it. I think the smell is amazing. I created it for you, for me, and uh, it doesn't actually involve any compromises. It's vegan, sulfate and phthalate free, cruelty free. My goal was to create something that marked all your milestone moments, but that didn't compromise your and others' health, and it's environmentally friendly with sustainable packaging. So head over to my website, RebeccaMinkoff.com, and check out my first fragrance. Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwoman. Today's guest is Isa Watson, the founder of Squad, a community and networking app that actually wants you to connect in real life. I mean, what are the chances? Um, She's fostered connections and built lots of squads. She is by far one of the most accomplished people I've ever met, having worked in science, in finance before leaving to start this company and is smarter than most women I've ever met. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation about how she became one of the youngest people to work with in her department at Chase and then left to start her own company and what inspired that. So take a listen.
1: Hi. Hey, how's it going?
0: So great to talk to you again. I feel like by the time uh, we're done recording today, I will know everything. I'll be able to recite your bio. <laughs> <laughs> that's what my husband says about me he says I've heard you answer the same question so many times I could take all of your interviews for you
1: at this point <laughs> <laughs> well I hope I don't sound like a broken record
0: <laughs> no 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 you don't I mean it's just funny how like he was listening to the same interview I've done like 60 times and so yeah um, it just made me laugh <laughs> um, so I would love for you to start a little bit with what you know squad is Mm-hmm. and how you came to be and then your journey, you know, to launch that.
1: Yeah. So we built squad as, you know, the next generation solution to social media and the ability to connect with people in a healthy and meaningful way squad was built out of the need for a you know, social media has been around for a long time. When I think about the legacy platforms, the Facebooks, the Twitters of the world, those are 10 to 15 years old at this point. And the one thing that, you know, social media has done in this current state has driven us apart a little bit more, made us feel a little bit more lonely, and hasn't really allowed us to create those meaningful connections and to sustain those. And so Squad was kind of built with that in mind as a solution to help people facilitate long-term relationships and and sustain those in a healthy way and people you know this this founding story of squad is is one that's really interesting because I I find a lot of founders they have this you know oh my god I had a eureka moment I I was standing on the street and I, I owed my I lost my wallet and I couldn't pay my friend and so boom I created some payment platform um for me squad goes all the way back to my upbringing when I was a kid, I remember our house in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, being the community center. That's what I called it. At least it was. Everyone was like kind of coming and and going, and the the community that my parents were able to foster was just so powerful. And so, you know, fast forward. I studied chemistry. I did my master's of pharmacology. Um, I was the youngest published chemist in the world at nineteen. I did my MBA at MIT. Fell into Wall Street, and I had a really great you know, career, I mean, upward trajectory, very quick. But the one thing that happened was not even related to work. You know, my parents sponsored a bus trip to visit colleges, for kids to visit colleges every year. In this particular year, the bus ran off a straight road and ejected both my parents and my dad didn't survive. And, you know, when I think about how I was spending my time and the impact that I wanted to have on the world and the blessings that I wanted to share with everyone, Um, my, how I was spending my time just wasn't it. And so it kind of took me back to my roots, what was really important to me. And I kind of go back to the importance of community and seeing that in my childhood and seeing that, you know, transcend through all my healthy, adult relationships. And so that was actually why the catalyst for creating squad, um, some of it, you know, positive and and long-term and some of it kind of stemming from a little bit of a trauma kind of repositioning me. But yeah, that that was kind of the the basis of why I started the company.
0: Wow. So a lot of people will hit these walls or extreme trauma and they'll just sort of give up. What do you attribute that was inside of you that said, no, I must keep going. No, I must start something I'm really passionate about.
1: My dad being thrown out of the front window of a bus um, was the most traumatic thing I've ever gone through. Uh, And my parents were married for it was 35 years and it was my mom's first time, like not, you know, it was just, it was just a lot. And I think for a while it took me a, a, a long time to process what, what had happened. But once I started to, I went through just such a variety of emotions. I was angry. I was upset. I was sad. I was driven. But the one thing that I kept coming back to Rebecca was the fact that my dad, what would my dad have wanted, you know, would he have wanted me to be held back or would he have wanted me to continue to excel? And the one thing that my dad always said to me is that he says, Isa, you are such a blessed girl. And it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can while you're on this planet. And I'm, I've never forgotten that. So when I think back to the things that made me kind of tap back into that, You know, it was really the community that I created around myself. It was therapy. (laughs) My therapist has been so critical and and helping me get to the other side of that. And it was just kind of maintaining perspective and giving myself permission to feel everything that I was feeling. I think so often feelings and emotions arise and we just like shut them down like it's a cockroach or like a bee. It's like, (laughs) shoo. And the reality is that when we do that, we don't allow ourselves to effectively deal with what that emotion is. And we're not kind of moving off from that problem. And so I think that was, it was a lot of internal work and I'm, I'm I still have setbacks, you know, but at the end of the day, I, I feel like I'm in the right mindset and the right place to keep moving forward. And I, I do feel like my dad is with me.
0: I love that. And I love that you know, you put in the work to not that you'll ever come out the other side, because I don't think anyone can recover, you know, the loss of a loved one, but that right. you're p- pushing through. Did you feel like you applied that same mentality to the idea of, I have this cushy job on Wall Street, cushy, not necessarily saying that it was easy by any stretch of the imagination, but financially stable into launching your own company? Or what did you go through there?
1: I absolutely did because it was two things. And this is like, again, for better or for worse, I was, I I shifted my perspective to from, okay, I'm going to plan out my next 15 years of my career. I'm going to make partner by this age. I'm going to run a division by that age. And then I'm going to run for U.S. Senator by that age. And that was like, I mean, I had this whole elaborate plan, Rebecca, (laughs) but the reality is that trauma made me live a lot more in the moment. And it made me say, what am I doing today to maximize the value that I'm delivering to the people around me and to stay healthy myself so that I can continue to deliver to the people around me? So, you know, leaving JP Morgan was a big decision. Like I was a very, I had a very highly visible role. I was, you know, a direct to the most senior leaders at the firm. And I had a lot of responsibility, especially for that age. You know, I was in my late twenties, but I said to myself, I looked at myself in the mirror one morning and I said, am I really happy and fulfilled going into this role and going into this job every single day? Or is there something that will make a bigger difference in this world? And if so, let me just go ahead and do it. And I, I think that the fear that I had, of like, well, what if I fail? Or what if I, this doesn't work out? I think the fear that I had just kind of, it didn't go away completely, but it just wasn't as relevant. It wasn't a decision driver. So that absolutely kind of played a part in and why I decided and how I decided to leave J.P. Morgan.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of, uh, I was talking with Jessica Garcia, she's an actress, and she was saying, you know, she was on a hit TV show, Still Waiting Tables, because she wasn't being paid enough, which was wrong on many levels, but she was like, you have to want to do what you want to do as if you're m- making no money or not being paid at all. You know, uh, that's I how know. much you have to love your passion, at least when you start out. So I think, yeah, I think anyone who starts this, you know, needs to be ready to say, to all that for a little bit, or for a long bit until, you know, so they can really achieve their their goals.
1: Yeah, exactly. And quite, quite frankly, like for the first few years of the company, I, I didn't take a salary. I uh, saved up enough of my JP Morgan money to just kind of live. Um, but yeah, I, I did it for, for no money and it took a while to raise. I mean, fundraising was a barrier and all that other stuff. So it, you know, I definitely realized in that moment of just like pure struggle that, um, it was definitely a huge passion of mine.
0: Totally. So take me through the first few years of startup pitching fundraising, you know, women have tend to have more trouble raising money than men. You're also a black woman raising money. So I'd love to hear what that experience was like.
1: So the first few years of a startup, I imagine is like somebody having zero guidance trying to raise a child by themselves for the first few years, (laughs) like as a teenager, probably (laughs) like, you think, you know, things, but you don't know what you don't know. And it just ends up being a whole entire clusterfuck like every day. And I think that, um, you know, we started and I I really wanted to do go to market in a really thoughtful way, you know, and so I didn't really launch a product just immediately. I was doing a lot of user interviews again, with the goal of how do we build tech to cultivate strong community in a way that is distinct and more meaningful than the traditional social media platforms. So yes, I'm doing the research. I'm trying to get to the right product and there's, there's just a lot of issues. you know. I thought that on paper, I graduated at the top of my class. I went to Hampton, I went to Cornell, didn't study chemistry. I went to MIT, was top there in economics. MIT is one of the top schools for economics. I had top reviews in every job I've done. And so I thought that that credibility would translate and would transfer and people would say, oh, you know, you have all the, these great experiences, you built billion dollar products before you've, you know, delivered things, you know, under budget and, you know, ahead of deadline multiple times, you're, you're good. But the reality is that I had no credibility as it pertained to startup life. So when I, when I went out to pitch, it was like, Oh, that's cool that you were at JP Morgan. That's cool that you were at Pfizer, but you weren't like employee number 10 at Facebook well, you know what? That ship has sailed. Like, I, there's no way I can fucking be employee number ten at Facebook at this point. <laughs> so, or they were like, but you were an employee number three at Spotify. So there was the 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 line in the sand had moved, and so I think you know. And it was also a, it was a little bit of a distraction, Rebecca. But I spent the first few years doing a lot of credibility building, bef- and right. not and we had and we had launched a product, but we were just like kind of we quietly had launched it, but it, again, credibility building. And I had over. Two to 300 meetings, information meetings with like Silicon Valley type of people um, that were experts in product and go to market and, you know, analytics and data science and all these other things just to build that up. And then once I started to get that going, that will, like, and I would I meet with one very influential Silicon Valley person, they would introduce me to another three. And then, you know, so on and so forth. And then I would start having honest conversations with them, especially the white men who I knew were in like very, um, quote unquote, like elite credible positions. I would tell them straight up. I'm like, I need you to lend me some of your credibility. And they were like, okay, say more. I'm like, I can't step into this room and be on equal footing when they look at me. I need you to talk me up before I go into the room so I can have a productive conversation. So that was then how I started to kick off my fundraising and then keep in mind on the product side started to kind of kick up the the product conversations and and scale up the product and so again i i think that you know silicon valley is known for what they call pattern matching and that's are you the 22-year-old white guy who dropped out of stanford in your last semester to make a point to go start <laughs> a company and your your business plan was written on a napkin you know, over dinner at Stanford in a dining hall. That's, that's, that's the problem. And I, I didn't fit that at all. Even though, like I said, I had the experience, but I, I didn't have the credibility. And so credibility building that led into fundraising, but it was also quite frankly, I, a little bit of a distraction from product building, you know, and I had to do both of those at the same time. And then I had to, once I had that, you know, I, I could push forward on the product. And I'll say fast forward, it definitely was an investment. And it's an investment that, I had to make because of, you know, how I, who I am. Right. But, you know, now when I step into a room in the Valley, especially people have heard about me and my reputation has preceded me. And so, you know, that's good, but it's also taken like four years to get here.
0: Right. So you would probably say to most, most people that are starting this fundraising, if they don't look like a white man that they should add in some extra years and or time to credibility build, to get those people to be um, advocates. And what what was the word you called it when you asked them to help you? I need them to let me my credibility, be my sponsors. Yes. 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 So people should really build that in because it sounds like once you did that, as annoying as it was,
1: mm-hmm.
0: now you have a strong base of people who know you, who support you, And fundraising probably is easier today than it was when you launched.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fundraising is easier today than it. Yeah. But also keep in mind, remember, you know this too, Rebecca. They do move the line in the sand. (laughs) They do move the line in the sand. If you needed like $2 million of uh, revenue to raise a series A, you go back a month later, they tell you it's $4 million, right? Right. And so the line always moves. But yes, at least I'm part of the quote unquote inner crowd now.
0: So, what would you tell people who a have never raised money um who are thinking about it? I'm always like, "Get ready. This is not easy. It's not just like people are like, "Oh, great idea. Yes, here's the check right um, What are some things you want like our listeners to know that is like three things to know before you start trying to raise money, especially if you're a woman and then take it another step further, a woman of color or a black woman, it gets harder, right?
1: right. Um, I would say the first thing is that you should start the fundraising process before you actually need the money. Even more specifically, the fundraising process, the way I talk about it, is also relationship building. There's a great deal. like People aren't just going to write you a check. They don't know you. <laughs> they don't know, you know anything about you because you have a good idea. What they want to know is who you are, how you move. That feedback that they gave you about your product or that feedback that they gave you about, you know, finances and things like that. Did you take that feedback? How did that play out? I started all of this networking about two years before we raised any kind of real capital. So we have raised about four million dollars. And, you know, it was, quite frankly, um, just so many meetings after meetings after meetings after meetings to make sure I could build that network. And I needed that to make my fundraise successful. So start, the first thing I would say is start before you actually need the money. The second um, I would say is try to get traction before you raise. The more minority boxes you can check, or that you do check whether you're female or black or latino or you are lgbt or you're disabled whatever the case is the more boxes you can check the more they're going to want to see on the traction part and what i mean is you know if you're selling a beauty product you know even if you don't you haven't had the money to produce the product yet do you have have you built a subscriber base have you built like 10,000, 20,000 people that are subscribing that have signed up for the pre-launch? Or if you are in an app or bu- building an app like we were, like, what's your user base if you have the app? And if not, like, what are the kind of indicators that, have, that can show that people are really interested in this app? Have you, you know, solidified partnerships with the right types of companies? And so whatever traction looks like, a lot of times people say, oh, I want to I start a company. And I'm going to build this product, which means I need this money today. The reality is that you probably don't need the money today to show initial interest and traction in a way that is meaningful to investors. And so that that's my second point. You know, the the traction. The third point is really more of an emotional self care point. Uh, fundraising is probably one of the most humbling experiences because people who are doing this for most for most part, like they've been told like they're like the number one or the best, like their entire lives. And in a very concentrated period of time, you're being told no in a very invalidating way by people that you probably admire and respect. And it it takes a toll on you just emotionally, like fundraising is, you know, my experience with fundraising is really all encompassing. I couldn't really focus on much else when I was fundraising, I couldn't focus on even difficult personal relationships that I wanted to repair. I was like, I have to fundraise. I'll catch you on the other side of that. But I think that, you know, making sure that you have the right personal support system around you and making sure that because fundraising is a very invalidating experience. What are your sources of validation around you? Making sure you have that I think is really important just to maintain your sanity. Like you see, especially a lot of female founders who will say like, man, I got rejected 100 by 200, by 300, 500 investors. That is not uncommon. Right. And so um, that's the third thing I I would point out because your emotional health is actually a a critical part of your success as well. I maybe sound
0: like a broken record here, but I tell the youth, I'm like, your career is not you know, ordering your Uber or clicking your Amazon. It does not come that quickly. And fundraising probably is 100 times more hard than that. It's like finding a needle in a haystack because it's not just any money you want. You want to make sure that you're you're now in, you're essentially now married to some other people. And there's a lot more at stake than I think maybe a marriage is unless you have kids. And, you know, these people have the opportunity to control, right, some of what you want to do, you know, Answer up to people. So it's definitely something to make sure you actually fall in love or at least really like your partners. Mm -hmm. So, what would you say now that you've been doing this? It's been four years. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Four years. (laughs) What do you want to do with the company and how have you pivoted when this whole pandemic hit?
1: Yeah. So, I would love for Squad to be the new norm for people connecting. So just how people talk about Facebook, they use it as a verb, just Facebook me, or, you know, the way that they casually talk about IG. I would love for a squad to be at that magnitude and not just, you know, for bragging rights, but more importantly, because I think that as a society, as a global world, we have gotten away from empathy and compassion and healthy relationships with one another, in part because of our unhealthy relationships with technology. And that's where I think squad can play a really, really significant role in society. And as far as, you know, COVID and the pandemic, we actually, you know, squad was really focused on as an app, you would get into the app and it would actually put you into squads locally and you would actually meet up, it would facilitate in real life meets with people. And we were all about IRL, IRL, IRL in real life. And that's what we talked about. And that was a big part of our brand. And COVID hit and we we're like, shoot, <laughs> we don't know when this is going to end. And, you know, we have to still help people connect in a meaningful way. So that said, what we did is we actually pivoted to, and I would, I would say like, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't use the word pivot. I would use the word kind of expanded, you know, our offering to helping people connect exclusively video um, for now until it's safe to resume. We're going to resume IRL meets more so on in the college settings, um, probably before some of the other settings, but moving out of the pandemic squad will, you know, help people facilitate that connection in real life and virtually. So it will be a bit of a hybrid, but again, the overarching goal is to help people find friends that they will love and connect meaningfully.
0: Well, I would also be remiss if before we finish, we didn't talk about what's happening now. And, you know, I guess so that this episode is not, well, it it will be dated, but, you know, we've just gone through, you know, the death of George Floyd and the hidden sort of systemic racism that's been going on for 400 years and the structures that have been built to keep black people and people of color down. And then let's add your gender. Let's add your gender to the mix right Just to make it harder so did you want to touch on how these issues have hit you and or like what you've done to sort of buck the system succeed in spite of what society has sort of put there to make sure that most people of color and black people don't make it
1: yeah you know to be honest with you this is the first time in a long time that i'm dealing with the issue Um, and it's not because I'm not black. If you see a picture of me, you can clearly tell it's not because I don't know it. It's just because I think that in order to deal with like all the stuff that I actually have to get done in a day, things come up and you just try to like, you, you hear them and you're like, Oh crap, that's terrible. And then you try to like push it out of your mind for a second so that you can continue moving forward. But I think that this is something, something hit differently about it or maybe it was just the been the volume and the length of time I think all those components just made the month of May and June um the whole summer in 2020 just feel a lot differently and made us face the issues that we didn't want to face and I can tell you that my therapy session last week I spent most of my therapy session crying. I had to take off my eyelashes. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I was like, I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted, um, you know? And I, 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 this country has a real nasty problem with systemic racism in a way that's just, as black people, you're just told, you know what? Just like, you can't change a whole system overnight but what you can do is like kick ass and not deliverable. What you can do is like get an A on that exam. And so you're looking at that next thing that you're trying to achieve as opposed to thinking about all these things that feel insurmountable to change. Um, and so I've been doing, you know, some things. One, first of all, I've been engaging in my, my own self-care and just giving myself this space to feel mm-hmm. that I really wasn't giving myself before because I was like, you know, I don't have time to cry. I don't have time to be sad. I have things to do. It was, just how, it was just how I coped with it, you know, at the time, just from a survival mechanism. I am, to be honest with you, there's a lot of different things you can do. People are protesting. People are having conversations. I've been open to having conversations with some people. I do think that it, it does fall on non-Black people to kind of, at first, try to do a little bit of their own research to understand, like, how do we get here? you know, there's a lot of interesting, you know, topics on that, but I've been, I've been open to having those conversations and and some of them have been quite productive. And I think that, you know, it's not always about a, a police officer kneeling in the back of someone's neck for almost nine minutes. It's, it's the fact that I can go to a store and get followed. It's the fact that, I get pulled over driving my mom's BMW. It's it's all these things, right? And it's educating people in some of those smaller things, especially white people, so that like we can break down and dismantle that that systematic racism. Um, And then, quite frankly, I I I used to tell people, Rebecca, if you if you had met me five seven years ago, five, seven years ago, you would have known me as that person who wanted to be, who was adamant about being governor and U.S. senator. I was, and people were like, I you should be president. You should be president. And I was like, I don't want to be president. I don't want to do all that. But I will, I will be U.S. senator or governor. And, you know, in 2016, that, that, like, I was committed to it. I was like, went out the window. Um, You know, I do think that politicians have played a really important role, but it's just something about maybe I want to spend my time differently as a private citizen influencing in a different way, but I have spent a lot more time even with with people who are running for office who I think can help dismantle this system, who obviously agree with, you know, I agree with a lot of their values. I don't agree with everyone 100%, uh, but obviously I agree with a lot of their values, but like, are you anti are you anti-racist? Are you breaking down some of these barriers? Are you dismantling this, this issue of systemic racism that we have? White people and Black people use marijuana at the same rate, but like 80% of the, the incarcerations are for Black people. You know, it's just it's things like that. And so I even have a friend right now. Um, his name is Mondaire Jones. We were neighbors when he was at Harvard Law School and I was at MIT. He's running for Congress in New York's 17th district. I've even been doing a lot of work on, on his campaign and supporting him. And so that's kind of what I've been doing. I've been putting you know, my money and my action where my heart is. I've been allowing myself to feel a lot more of the pain. Um, that way I can kind of deal with it in a more productive way. And I've also been just taking time to engage in productive conversations that I feel would be helpful to people.
0: I think that's awesome. And I think that like what you said in the beginning, you don't owe it to any white person, you know, to explain or educate us, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've really taken the last two weeks to not only educate myself and say where, where wasn't I thinking deep enough and, and acting more, but I think that any, you know, Netflix is like, there are so many people and platforms making this stuff free, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that you had said on our Instagram live that we could just
1: text you, right? Is that still available? It's still available. If it's available when this goes live, I'm not sure, but yeah, it's, it's still there. It's ISA, um, text ISA, ISA at 474747. And there we put just a list of a Google doc that had a bunch of links to articles that we thought were pretty educational movies or series to watch as well as books. Cause apparently like the whole what's popular Amazon has changed pretty dramatically in the last month. And so, yeah, like I, we put that together and that's been people have said it's been helpful.
0: It's been great. I sent it to my whole company.
1: I love it. That's awesome though. But Rebecca, to be honest with you, it's, it's people like you on the other side. And when I say the other side, I mean, you know, the side where, that, the safe side, right, um, or safer, that, that use your power to help empower other people and to help encourage people who look like you to, you know, educate themselves. And it's, it's, it is, there is a lot of white allyship right now, and I'm not knocking it, but I do, I'm, it's not lost upon me that there are people who were doing this before it was popular, And before those black squares popped up on Twitter, I mean, on Instagram (laughs) and you were one of those people. So that's, that's super clutch.
0: Well, you know what? I had a microcosm of, of discrimination compared to what you've gone through and it's never left me, you know, since I was little being judged all the time on my religion. And so I'm just like, I'm going to make sure that I have empathy. I think we talked about this too, empathy and like I know what that shit feels like and but it's not based, you know, you have to get to know me to then discriminate, right? Whereas right, you know, right. people of color and and black people they get it when they walk in the room. So that that awful feeling has never left me. I carry it with me to this day. Well, thank you. This was awesome and I'm excited to see um, everyone start saying, "Oh, just me." Some-
1: <laughs> exactly. <I> <laughs>